a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Are you recording? Welcome, fine people, to the Howie Games Artist Series, Episode 4, Part A, starring Will Anderson! Hello? Hello, Melbourne. Good to be here. In uh, Economist magazine last year did a survey of where the best place to be born if you are a baby in the entire world. Australia, our beautiful country, is now the number two country in the entire world for a baby to be born, only behind the Swiss. And they cheat with their free vitamins and shit. And <laughs> that number two in the entire world. If you were a baby born in Australia in 2014, you should not even cry when you come out, right? <laughs> You should come out of your mum, like, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie! Will, well, Will's actually a really hard bloke to categorise. He's a comedian, TV host and producer, radio star, podcaster extraordinaire, sports fanatic and plenty more. But to me, Will is one of my best mates from high school, so it is really cool to have him on the show. This is an episode about many things, but the central theme, do a job you love. As you'll soon hear, Will was set on the path to becoming a journalist. A fine job, if you love it. But at a relatively young age, Will was self-aware enough to realise he didn't love it and then courageous enough to chuck it in and chase what he did want to do, which was to be a stand-up comedian, at which he is brilliant. If you've seen Will live, you will have left the venue with your sides sore from laughing. True story. He's a genius. If you haven't, sort it out. You can watch Will on his two TV shows, if you don't mind, on the ABC, Gruen, and question everything and listen to his suite of podcasts, Philosophy, Tofop, Fofop, and Two Guys One Cup. Here's to a life less ordinary with country kid made good, Will Anderson. Welcome to the Howie Games, one of the most entertaining, creative men in the country, podcaster, comedian, TV star, TV executive producer, does it all, this man, Will Anderson. G'day, mate. How are you going? Thank you for having me on, Howie. I appreciate being on the Howie Games because I was there for the original meeting, the conception of what has become this international phenomena <laughs> that is the Howie Games. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, great man, because I'm going to pick your brains again. For those that don't realise, well, four and a half years ago, I rang you and I said, mate, you're the king of podcasts. I'm thinking about doing one. And we met at that little cafe on Spring Street and you answered all my questions. The European Cafe, I'll give them a plug. You That's know, it. It's a very good cafe, the European Cafe. And uh, I often stay near there when I'm doing the comedy festival in Melbourne. And we had a little meeting and you were like, you know, I want to get into podcast. And here's my idea. It's basically your idea, but about sport. And, and I was like, well, exactly. I encourage that. I'm not really talking to all those sports people. So the, it is free and easy for you to have a crack at it. And it's it's been amazing to see what it's become. I mean, it's really been, you know, it's, it's good that there's a podcast that my dad can listen to. And it's yes. yours, not mine. Yes. Because <laughs> I think that works for both dad and me. I don't want dad listening to what I'm talking about <laughs> and dad doesn't want to listen to that, but he likes your show. So, Graham, yeah, down there in the country, he's listening to the Howie Games. This fills me with joy. Uh, not only is he listening to the Howie Games, but I don't know if this is still the way that it's happening, but I know initially the way that it was happening was, and by the way, I have not passed on every bit of feedback he's given me to pass on to you about <laughs> the podcast. I've kept some I of that I get a bit. Myself. Don't worry, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think mum downloads them 
to an old school iPod. So she like downloads a whole bunch of them, puts them on an iPod, and then Dad can kind of handle it from there. I think is how it works. What what type of advice is he sending through? Give me give me a rough sort of feel of what the country farmer feels about the show. No, mostly uh, mostly he loves it. I mean, you know, my dad he's a massive sports fan. It was kind of one of the identifying things when I was growing up. We were surrounded by sport. We were bonded by sport, but also it was. As far as I could identify, he's only real passion outside his job and his family. Like my dad felt like a very simple man. He didn't drink. He didn't take drugs. He wasn't like, you know, whipping out a guitar and playing a musical instrument, any of those sort of things. He was a dairy farmer and he liked his family and he um, loved sport and he still loves sport. You know, he still is the timekeeper for the local football team in Hayfield. You know, he played at the, as you know, he played like cricket until he was, you know, like a much, much older man, basically to the point where when he was bowling his off spinners, it's fair to say that the old uh, 15% that you're meant to bend your arm, I think was even morally <laughs> might have been looking at my dad and going, that's a throw. <laughs> <laughs> so people understand immediately here that we are very, very familiar. People that listen to your show, I was kindly on your show a couple of years ago, they all know that we went to school together, which we'll get to. But, mate, going back to the university cafe, I find myself in a tricky position again now because you are the first guest on the Howie Games, but I don't have a name yet. So I need to run you a couple of things by you, you being the creative type you are. So I was thinking about- This is, by the way, the Howie Games where you now literally are moving into my territory. (laughs) Early on I said you can have sports people (laughs) and now you're not only moving into the world of entertainers and people who would be on the Willosophy podcast, but you've literally got me on as the first example. You're like, I won't hide from this. I won't do it behind Will's back. I'm going to literally bring him in and cuck him in front of his face. Rising tides float all boats, my man. That is the expression. So I was thinking about the Howie Games, the artist series or the artistic series, and then I thought, what if I wanted to get a really creative businessman on that's done exceptional things? So then I was thinking the creative series or the Howie Games, the creator series. As the man that put me on this path originally, what type of name do you think I'm going with that I can encapsulate artistic, creative people, but not necessarily people we would define as artists? Firstly, what I would say is that I often find the similarities are very close. They're all just versions of another game, right? Sport is something that we have decided is important. And I think this is – I was reading uh, Michael Warner's book, uh, The Boys Club, about the AFL, and Michael Warner is a brilliant journalist. But one of the the stats he goes with early is around AFL and attendance at games. If you go on average attendance at games, the AFL is the fourth highest attended sport in the entire world, only behind, you know, obviously yeah. the biggest sports in the entire world. This is a game that isn't even the, like, number one – well, it's the number <laughs> one game in its own country, but half of the country plays a completely different sport and follows a different sport. It's an incredible it. story. It is important because we have decided that it's important. And from day to day, people will live their emotions based on, you know, my team won and I feel fantastic, my team lost and this guy should be fired and this person should be sacked and I hate this person. But it's just a game. That's why the Howie Games, I think, is such a brilliant name for a podcast because it reminds us that I am talking to all these excellent people at the top of their sports all around the world who clearly take them incredibly serious and it is more than just a game to them. But at the end of the day, it is also just a game. Yes. And 
Comedy is just a game and being a painter is just a game and being a businessman is just a game. They are all games that we decided there was a set of rules to and there would be certain participants to and you would have certain access to their games. So it doesn't feel like a completely different thing to me. I remember talking to Steve War many, many years ago um, on a radio show I was doing and I love Steve War as a cricketer and I asked him, when the West Indians are bowling to you, you, are, you know, like, you know, faster than you could possibly make a decision of where you're going to hit it, how do you make that decision of where you're going to hit it? And he said to me, he said, you don't have time to make the decision what shot you're going to play out there. You train and you hope in that moment that your instincts and your training take over. You've Mm -hmm. got to be in the moment. You've got to get out of your own way and let all the work that you've done up until that point take over, be in the moment. And my job when it's at its best, is exactly that. When I am good at what I am doing, I've put in all the work, all the training, all the bad gigs, all the testing of jokes to get to that point where I can just be out there and reacting to the moment. Was that a big laugh? Was it a little laugh? Was it a ooh? Like what do I have to adjust? Do I have to go louder? Is there more energy? Is there less energy? If I am just making those decisions rather than thinking about the fact that I have to make those decisions – that's when I'm at the top of my game. So anyway, that did not answer your question about what you should call the podcast. Well, but- it, it has because I think I, I like the artist series, but I thought it would be too narrow. But from what you've described to me, that, that will suit perfectly. I think that when we're at our best is when we have got to the point that we have forgotten that we are making the decisions. Right. Well, I'm going to go with the Arta series then. I like the positive affirmation down that point. We talked a lot about sport already. So the theory is we start talking about sport and then we move into what you do for a living, my man. So grew up regional Victoria at the same school as me. It was cricket in the summer and footy in the winter. There was no other option, let's be completely honest. What was your greatest ever day on a sports field, Will? Oh, um, I think probably I was – if I had to rank, like, you know, the sports that I played and my capacity for them. Please do. I'll enjoy this because I saw (laughs) them up close. So my dad was a brilliant cricketer, also an excellent footballer, but like a brilliant cricketer. In a different age, you know, kind of played state country level representative cricket. And in this age where instead of being, you know, 30 cricketers in the country that can make a job, there might be like, you know, 100 who can make it their job in various leagues. Maybe my dad in a different life would have played, you know, a bit more high level cricket. That's how good a cricketer that he was. Um, He was also a pretty competent footballer, you know. I was probably a better footballer than I was anything else. I was a decent enough basketballer and I was always a terrible cricketer. It was the one that I wished that I could master some aspect of it, but I was a jack of all trade and a master of none. I bowled fast, I bowled medium, I bowled leg spin. I like <laughs> tried to be a, like a, a basher in the cricket. I tried to be a gritty opener, like none of, I just was like, I did, the only thing I didn't try was wicket keeping, but just because I couldn't squat down that much and I was a bit too scared of the ball. So well, I'll bring a couple to the table for me. Yeah. So for me, one of the big moments in both our sporting lives was my father getting the felt from the paper mill where he worked down in Maryvale and putting it in the trailer and driving it to your place alongside your father and laying it in your cricket net you had at your house 
to make a new surface and we played a lot of cricket on that. The fact that you had a cricket net in your house probably displays your father's obsession with the game for a start, I would have thought. And then we laid our own pitch, mate, with Maryvale Mill Felt. Yeah, so I think my dad had a real mix of he had ambitions he would have loved if I had been a good cricket. There's no doubt about that. that well, that's why him... the cricket nets were there, I feel, my friend. <laughs> yeah, he, he hadn't set up an amateur stand-up comedy club with <laughs> no, a light and a stool hadn't. and a microphone. He definitely <laughs> hoped that I might be a cricketer. And I think that there was probably two things going on. One was that he wanted that. I mean, I remember sitting with my sister Suze on the couch watching the Olympics one night and I remember saying to my dad, Dad, would you love us more if we were swimmers at the Olympics? And without hesitation, he just went, yes. <laughs> and it was so real. It was just one of those, like my sister and I talk about it all the time because never had just, okay, all right, well. Um, but I, he wasn't also a pushy dad in regard to, I wish there'd been a bit more of, you know, Tiger Woods's dad or like, you know, Serena Williams' dad in him sometimes where he had all this great knowledge and skill about the game and I almost wish he'd been out there, you know, for two hours with me with the bowling machine trying to yeah. make me a better cricketer because I think that he had an attitude of I'm not going to be that sports dad, I'm not going to push too hard. He would often coach our teams but he wouldn't treat me any differently to anybody else in that regard and I, I often look back on that and think uh, maybe I wish that you had – Push me a little bit harder, but so so that's the cricket side of things. The football yeah. side of things, you were always a tall kid at school. I was always a small kid. So year nine, you you were, you were the ruck in the football team. I was trying to think back. Was it called the Caltex Shield? There was a representative level of football. I think it was associated with school, but you played in it. So you were our man in years eight and nine as far as footy goes, I reckon. Yeah, so I um, have been the same height I am now, about six foot two and a half since I was like 11 or 12. <laughs> like I had a good growth spurt and then my body went, this will do, that'll do, pig, that'll do. Like grew no more. And basically what that meant as a junior sports person is it gave you, like I mean obviously size gave you, I remember it distinctly, even surprised me. Because I remember going from grade six at school, maybe even like year seven at school, and not being a particularly talented athlete. And then one day we were doing, you know, the school sports carnival that they have. Yeah. And I just ended up winning. Like I remember running to the car afterwards. It would have been year seven or year eight and showing my mum that I'd like won like five events or something. Like I'd won like the sprints but I'd also won like the shot put and the javel. Like it was a real – I had like a long jump record that like stuck Thompson around for style years. territory. <laughs> right. <laughs> Amazing. But basically yeah, it was right. just that I had had a growth spurt and I had become bigger and stronger than most of the other kids. And so I had a period of junior football around sort of 14 or 15, I guess it was, where it peaked, where I was playing under 15s but I was also playing in the the third. So that would have what they been under 18s, I think it was back in the day, or under 19s. Anyway, for whatever. For Hayfield? For Hayfield. Yep. And I came third in the league best and fairest of the under-17s or under-18s. Yes. Uh, uh, um, and second in the Hayfield best and fairest that year for the under, whatever it was, the, 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 when I was a schoolboy, when I was 14 years old. And so that was definitely the peak. So I, got, I played for East Gippsland in schoolboys two years in a row, might have even captained it the second year or was vice-captain, I think, with it. Ernie Ronke. And, yeah, it was like was in 
We played, like, went to country Victoria trials, didn't make the final squad, but was in the, didn't make the final team, but was in the final squad for country Victoria at that point. And then everybody else started growing. <laughs> and it turned out <laughs> that I wasn't actually that good. I'd just been bigger than everybody else. But your, your cousin, who I can remember, Stewie Anderson, who played, uh, AFL football for North and Frio, did he? Played in a premiership with North Melbourne and also go. played at Fremantle. Crash from the back by Longmire, legitimately. And away goes Pike with a couple of bounces and a third. Breaking lines, a fourth. Good shipping by Blakey. Pike takes Jekovic on and breaks him. Kicks the ball inside. Good kick to centre half and He's found Anderson. What a play by Pike. He missed one earlier today from about... Five or ten metres further out than this, but this to give North Melbourne the lead for the first time since the 12-minute mark of the first quarter. Anderson from 40 metres out kicks the goal. So I can remember him in year 10, year 11, when we were playing for the grammar school in cricket against the Catholic school where he went and he made one of the great hundreds. Kids didn't make hundreds in under sort of 15, 16 territory and he tore us apart. So there's a lot of sporting talent in the family. Was Stuart an incredibly naturally talented sports person? He was yes. one of those guys that it wouldn't surprise you if he had like a golf handicap of three. Like he was yeah, just. Yeah, that's, that's the guy. Because I remember that day in particular that you're talking about because we were all standing in the slips and it got to the point where he was literally just hoiking, yes. like, you know, like Brian Lara, David Hooks sort of style, <laughs> yes. just hoiking whatever came at him over the fence. <laughs> and even when we were on the opposition, it just became like it, it was more entertaining to see him do that than it was <laughs> yeah, it in our was. interest to get him out. Well, we'd never seen anything like it. We, we, well, yeah, I played a lot of cricket and I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, but, Will, I was hoping you would bring up for me, the greatest sporting performance we were both involved with, we were from a, a, a the grammar school who had been no good at footy. We used to get beat up by the Catholics, by the Sale High, Terralgon High, and then it was the Herald Sun competition. Is that what it's called, mate? Yeah, maybe. And we played a succession of games where we won five, six, seven games of footy in a row. You were, I was in the forward pocket. You were our big centre-half forward, I think. And we got to play at Waverley in a grand final. I do remember that. I remember I played terribly in that grand final, which is probably what sours my memory of that particular day. But we won. Oh, uh, yeah, we won. I just like clearly personally judged myself more than anything else. For me, the peak of it, now, I yep. remember like probably the best I ever was as a junior footballer, if I can remember one game. There was yep. a game that I played of um, schoolboys footy in the schoolboys you know, championship in Melbourne where – um, we were playing at Moorabbin and it was so muddy in the middle of Moorabbin that like they literally had had to rope off the middle of the ground like <laughs> so you couldn't actually go into the centre square. They would roped it off and if the ball went in there, it was like out of bounds and somebody would have to wade through the mud to go in there and get it, right? So just this horrible day where the team just did not play well but I just had one of those games where you know, for whatever reason. It probably because it was getting to the point where, you know, everybody else being naturally slowed down a little played back into my strengths again, you know. <laughs> but in some ways that was the precursor to footy, AFL footy three years ago when no one would go through the centre of the ground. It's just hug the boundary line. Well, yeah, it might have been time for my big comeback. <laughs> I was like, guys, <laughs> these conditions suit me perfectly. Before we move off sport and get into what you do for a job, 
The Western Bulldogs' first premiership, and you could tell me how many years you were there that day. I've seen the obsession up close you've had. Why the Bulldogs and what did that day mean to you? So, well, it was 60, uh, 61 we played Hawthorne in the grand final that, right. and we lost to them and that was the last time that we were in a grand final. The Wren comes in, there's the final siren, the final siren, and Hawthorne are premiers for the year 1961. The first premiership for Hawthorne Congratulations to them from all sporting fans. So we won in 54. It's a goal and it's all over. Footscray's first ever grand final. Final scores, Footscray 15-12-102, defeating Melbourne 7-9-51. And we lost in 61. And... So boldly, and I, I'm just going to bring this up because you say so many stupid things in your life and occasionally one of them comes true. You might as well claim it when it comes yes. true. Boldly at the Bulldogs' first game of that season, I was a guest at the game, you know, like doing it, kind of speaking at halftime in the, you know, the medallion club or whatever it was in the in the function. And I got up there on stage and said, we are going to win the premiership this year. It's like it's 2016 reverse the curse. Opposite of, you know, 61, 2016 <laughs> reverse the curse. curse. And <laughs> – I said, we're going to beat – my pick was we're going to beat Hawthorne in the grand final and reverse the curse. That's We ended up beating, beating Hawthorne in one of the finals on the way. Yes. And people got behind reverse the curse. I still to this day have a few people just when they see me and they know who I am and they know that I barrack for the Bulldogs just come up and go reverse the curse. <laughs> <laughs> but that year uh, I really fell in love with the Bulldogs because my dad had this philosophy that I didn't realise – at the time, how generous it was in a way, but as you get older, you kind of have a different insight into these things, which was, I, we came from a Collingwood family. So my grandpa, Jim, was a massive Collingwood fan. All these kids are Collingwood fans. All their grandkids are Collingwood fans. And so it was almost expected in our family that you were a Collingwood supporter. And of course, when I was a little kid, you just follow all your cousins and stuff at Christmas. And you know that grandpa probably won't give you five bucks if you don't tell him mm. that you love Collingwood. So there is still a photo that exists of me as a young fella in a Collingwood jumper. So oh. technically, you know, I was a Collingwood fan before I knew that you could choose your own team. And then one day <laughs> Dad explained to me, because I, I, I finally worked out, Dad, you barrack for Geelong. Everyone else in the family barracks for Collingwood, but you barrack for Geelong. Like, should I be barracking for Geelong? And he said, no, well, I chose my own team and I think that you should choose your own team. I shouldn't tell you which team you should barrack for. Now, there was plenty of years, Howie, where I wish he told me to barrack for Geelong because they were doing a lot better than the Bulldogs. I was like, this is not a good example of how I've made my own choice. But I had a, a friend called Jason McCainch who was a local farm kid as well and we played footy together at Hayfield and basically the way that country footy works is you'll go and, you know, play in the juniors and then you spend the afternoon watching all the senior teams play. And so we would – sit in the car together watching the Hayfield Seniors play and listen to ABC Radio, you know, and he was a Bulldogs fan. And huh. then Brad Hardy and a bunch of other footballers, oh, I wish I could remember the others, but Brad Hardy in particular came to our school. So he won the Brownlow in, what was it, 85, 86, 80, it's something like that. Maybe 85. 85. Maybe 85. Right. So I'm 11. So he must have, it might have been the year before that, you know, like last year at primary school, something like that, they've come to school because uh, we were a Gipps, Gippsland was a Bulldogs zone. So zone, when I played all my representative uh, junior football, the schoolboys football for East Gippsland, we always wore the Bulldogs colours. And, you know, 
I so Brad Hardy came down and I just thought he was amazing. And then when he won the Brownlow, that was the first time as a Bulldogs fan I'd really kind of got, oh, look, I, this thing that I barrack for, this player from our team is, you know, really successful. And then I think it was probably when I started playing in those schoolboys games, the first year I would have been like 13 or 14 and they took us, of course, to Bulldogs training. We went out to the, the Witten Oval, the Western Oval to – watch the Bulldogs train. And, of course, then you're not the loser kid for barracking for the Bulldogs, right? Like normally, you know, you're surrounded by Collingwood fans and Carlton fans and Essendon <laughs> fans and all these sort of things. There's not a lot of other Bulldogs fans at school. But suddenly, you know, you've got the golden ticket. You're Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and they're much more interested in the kid who actually barracks for the Bulldogs. And, and of course, you're more excited as a kid too. So I remember about then I was all in. That was – and then I rode obviously their fortunes – you know the highs and the lows, and there were plenty of lows mm. um, in the in between time. And my friend Charlie and I started a you know an AFL adjacent podcast. That's what we call it, called Two Guys One Cup. And the whole premise of that was that he barracks for St Kilda and I barrack for the Bulldogs. And most of the conversations we'd had with each other over the years were what it was like to support a team that had only won one premiership in their entire existence. And of course. We started that show in 2016 and the Bulldogs won in 2016, which really kind of ruined the premise of what that was meant to be. <laughs> and the moment when the siren sounded and you'd finally seen your team win a premiership? Well, so I always say that I didn't really, you know, because you talk about it, you go, oh, it's one of the best days of my life. Eastern Wood leads them out onto the MCG and like so many in the Bulldogs breed, not a single one of them has been to a grand final before. It really wasn't pleasant, if that no. makes sense. Like yes. it was too nerve-wracking. And I was nervous all day. And I, it, it, I talked to my dad early on because I've, you know, been to – I've been very lucky in my life, Howie, to go to a lot of grand finals. The first grand final of which I ever went to uh, was with you. Yes. Uh, and – um, it was uh, 89. No, 1989, which it turns out was one of the greatest <laughs> grand finals yes. in the history of the AFL. That's right. We're down to 15 seconds now as play restarts. Geelong must get it immediately. One down by Flanagan, taken by Buse, upended by Dippy Domenico. They lock it up again. It looks like it's all over. The dream of back to back penance is all but there as far as the Hawks are concerned. There's the siren. Hawthorne have won it by six points. Which you probably don't fully appreciate when you're a you know teenage kid. You don't even appreciate the magnitude that somebody has given up a ticket to the grand final. And then I've been incredibly lucky over the years in between to probably have been to ten or fifteen of them. And but never had been to one where I got to see my own team. And it had actually been a point of contention between Charlie and I. We'd often talked about because he'd seen St Kilda lose. Grand finals, in fact, tie grand finals and then go on to lose grand finals, whereas I'd never even seen my team in the grand final. And I would say all I really want to do is have grand final week. I want to know what that is like. I've never even had that. And he said, no, it's worse if they lose and then you're haunted by that. <laughs> I I must say I've never I've never seen my team lose a grand final, which is not something that everybody can say. No. Um, but that day in particular, I don't think I breathed for most of the game, but Charlie – uh, went with me to the grand final and he took some video footage and there is a moment basically 
after the, the Tom Boyd goal. Buddy tackled by Morris. Goal! Dropping the ball. Boyd took the advantage and played on from inside the centre square. Boyd's kicked the goal. Boyd's oh! kicked the goal from inside the centre where I, I really felt like we were going to win. Like, I mean, I was like, this is it. We are going to win this. I don't think that we're going to. There was a moment where the ball went into the middle and Buddy Franklin looked like he was, yeah, all day, despite the fact that he was injured, he looked like at any moment he could just impose his will on that game. And, you know, Dale Morris with a broken back, as we all know now, mm. you know, tackles him in the middle of the ground and the ball spills free to Tom Boyd, who was such an emblem of the story of that club that two years before had lost its coach and its CEO and its captain all in basically one weekend. And the president had just decided we need to do something bold as a club and it offered Tom Boyd a million bucks to come to the club. And I remember at the time sometimes a gesture is super important because our club looked like it was going to just, you know, fold Implode, and go yeah. home. You were just like, I, I remember at the time thinking, I'm never going to see this team like even play finals again in my lifetime. What have I done? I've just wasted so much time and energy and money invested in this stupid, stupid team. And then the ball spilt to him and he kicked this incredible goal from the middle of the ground and it just felt like in that moment that, ah, oh, this is it. Good kick virtually on the siren. Misses, but they don't miss out. Their day, their year, their joy. And it's so funny that once it happens, you know, I wouldn't trade, now that I know that I get my happy ending, mm. I wouldn't trade 10 premierships for that because I feel like if you're a Hawthorne fan like you are, it's a different level of expectation, right? Yeah. In that, you know, you expect to play in the grand final regularly. You expect to see premierships regularly, you know. Whereas for me, I'd almost given up on the idea that it would ever happen. And then the fact that it did, it it just felt so incredibly satisfying. One, one final one on sport before we move on. I was... Beside myself, a couple. Well, can of years I just ago. say quickly, yes. just on that Please grand do. final, that yes. uh, two stories that you might enjoy. One is that I saw Jason McCainch that morning. I was doing. Oh, your mate. So the mate who I originally got into the Bulldogs hadn't seen him in twenty years, and on the morning of the grand final, I was doing a panel for a Triple M, and there in the front row was Jason McCainch, the kid that I. And so he was there as well. So the two of us were there at the game that day and we got to see each other, which was incredible. And the other one was at the uh, at the party that night. Um, I had been invited to say a few words after Peter Gordon finished his speech, but then he did like an hour and a half speech and turned out. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's still doing his speech, which is fine because he was very responsible for yes. it happening. And if he wants to take as much credit as possible, I am fine with that. But I remember... I uh, went to give Easton Wood a hug and I had forgotten that I had a glass of champagne in each of my hands. And so I s managed to smash them into each other <laughs> right down the back of our premiership captain. So the fact that he had to walk around avoiding glass and wet down his back for the rest of the evening was entirely my fault. <laughs> 
<laughs> Mate, one of my my greatest um, – the thing that really hit me of all the things I've been lucky enough to do at work was a few years ago when we had the cricket at Fox and I started to call the test cricket on television for the first time and it was a Boxing Day test and the boss said, Mate, you take the first stint with Warney and Kerry O'Keefe. And I was gobsmacked and he said, yeah, okay. And I said, you don't understand. I, I grew up forever and a day going to the first day of the Boxing Day test match with a couple of mates. One was you and another was Pete Shepherd. And then as time progressed um, with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, Erica, and, and I couldn't believe I was sitting there after the years we would spend sitting there talking crap about the cricket, they were going to let me do it on TV, <laughs> which still to this day I can't really fathom. But those memories of going with a couple of your mates to the Boxing Day test, and you may not have seen them for a year, you may have only just chatted, they may have been you were travelling, you were spending a lot of time in America, those Boxing Days, sitting there doing the quiz, having the sandwiches from the day before and just chatting with a couple of mates are probably in my top five sporting memories of all time. I, I loved those days at Boxing Day. And I love this rivalry playing out slap bang on the biggest day of the cricketing calendar. Welcome to Boxing Day. Australia versus New Zealand. Where else but right here at the one and only MCG. They were... Yeah, look, incredible days. I mean, I, 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 when I reflect on it, the amount of brilliant sporting moments that we all shared together as kids yeah. is, is is quite incredible. But the fact that we managed to, at least for a while, until, you know, we all got old and life got in the life way, you know, transition that into our adulthood was, yeah, it was. It felt like an anchor. And particularly, like, you and I both had done a lot of time, you know, travelling around the world and you always felt like it was an open invitation. If you happen to be back in Australia, then there was an anchor there, which was going to the Boxing Day cricket with your friends. And there would be no need to catch everybody up on what you've been up to. I mean, it might come up during the day, but if it didn't no. and you didn't want to talk about it, that was fine too. We could just like talk about cricket and do the quiz from the newspaper. Yeah, they are They are some of the, the great memories. Back to Will, Ian and Jiffy. A quick thanks from me to everyone who has jumped on the website at howiegames.com and ordered merch. The orders have been flying in. It is cool the way you have all been supporting the show through the gear, whether it's the hats, the jumpers, the T-shirts. Thank you so much, howiegames.com. Now, next up on the Howie Games, a man that was part in the day of the biggest band on the planet, a true rock star, Kirk Pengilly. I love this episode. Love everything about it because it follows a group of mates who started a little band called In Excess that became a really, really big band. Well, we met this guy in Perth at a pub. He came and saw us um, and he said, I want you guys to come up and play uh, in Port Hedland. Um, <laughs> I can pay, uh, you know, I don't even know what it was. It might have been a 1000 bucks to do a couple of shows at two different sort of um, sister, brother, mining towns uh, owned by the same, you know, mining company. Um, and here's a bag, a bag of pot for incentive. Um, <laughs> so we're in. <laughs> we were in. We hadn't seen pot. We hadn't seen pot in about eight months, you know, because you couldn't get it in Perth. Anyway, um, so so that that was great. We we, we went and hired, we hired two kind of uh, uh, vans uh, to put all the gear in and whatever. 
Um, and Tim decided to be the navigator, uh, you know, maps. We didn't have GPS back in no. those days. Uh, maps and Tim sees a road that looks, well, that looks shorter than the other one. Let's take that one. <laughs> and, of course, it was like 1,500 you know, miles of dirt road. Um, so all the gear was just, uh, you know, dust in everything. But at one point um, the, the van in front of, uh, that had most of the drums in it, um, the, the back, um, you know, the tailgate on it came loose and opened up and the guys in front obviously had been smoking some of the pot that the promoter guy gave us, um, didn't realise and gear started falling out of the, you know, of the van, well, snare like drums. music gear? Yeah, you know, snare drums rolling down the road. And we're, and we're like flashing the lights and honking the horn and they didn't, you know, eventually they saw us and we had to go back and salvage all, you know, all the bits and pieces that fell out. It wasn't too much, thankfully. But, yeah, you know, every, every crevice in every guitar and amplifier it was full of fine red Western Australian dust for years. Do not miss Kirk Pengilly on what life is like as a true rock star. Next up on the Artist Series. Let's get back to Will. So, mate, as we said, you're one of the most creative blokes getting around in so many different fields. The first time it, it hit me, and I obviously have a much greater understanding than other guests that will come on this series, is we used to have to do the school play. And so I was blue, Cranswick, Dargo. Someone would find a written play and we'd get a few actors and bang it together and it present in front of the school and it'd be like the, the school play competition. And what year was it when you, as a man that was in the Yellow House, Tisdall Hotham, wrote their house play? And I remember you saying... I remember saying, I remember it clearly, mate. I guess it was about year nine. You'll have to tell me. I said, oh, what play are you guys doing? Because I, I was in uh, a, a vampire-style play for Cranswick Dargo, and you said, oh, mate, I've written the play. And I was like, what do you mean you've written the play? Because you were Will that I played cricket and footy with and I'd go to your house. We weren't sitting around talking about writing plays or being creative folk. We were just country kids that liked playing sport. So how did you do that? Why did you do that? And when did you do that? Well, I think that writing is generous. Like I think that at best I'd done, you know, cover versions of other comedians' jokes and bits and, you know, influences, you know, much like any creative process when it first starts, starts out, you tend to be a compilation of your influences and then eventually hopefully you use the structure of those influences to develop your own voice. So it's not like I was um, – you know, Mozart-like child genius who was, like, you know, churning out these incredible works of art. But there was something at the heart of them that I think probably when my work is at its best carries through it, which was I looked at the house plays and I always thought they were a bit boring because essentially they had to be, I think, like 30 minutes or whatever each house got. I can't remember what it was, an hour, 30 minutes, whatever the time limit was, and it meant that if you were going to go and find a play that suited that period of time, it was normally a three or four hander. Yep. It was like a one act play, you know, that somebody had written. And it would often be an adult play. It wouldn't engage the audience. It wouldn't, you know, get them engaged in theatre at all. It'd be something boring almost that you would have to sit through. But it was also not inclusive at all. And I had this idea in my head that everybody who wanted to be in the play should get to be in the play. So uh. 
I think I must have been in year 10. I think year nine must be too young. I don't really know is the actual answer. But um, I remember boldly standing up in one of those house meetings where, I mean, in retrospect, you know, like the year 12s and year 11s are normally the people in charge of these meetings and me as a year nine or a year 10 has just gone, when it comes to house play, I've got this shit. You know what I'm going to (laughs) do? We're not going to pick a play. I'm going to write a play. So I don't... I think the miracle there is not the play. The miracle is how I convinced a room full of people that that was going to be the approach. But and to have the confidence to do it. It's not like you were a, you didn't lack confidence, but you weren't one of those kids that just dominated a room by your confidence. It's a pretty gutsy thing to do. In retrospect, absolutely. I yeah. don't know. At the time it just seemed to make sense. It seemed to be something that I thought that I could do. But often when I do things, it's 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 less about the project and more about the reason. I often say that I don't want to do something that isn't answering a question, you know. I don't like a TV show or a, a you know, a performance that is just about being the performance and I, I'm just saying for myself. I'm yep. not, yeah, there is a role absolutely for those things. But when I'm making something, it often starts with, you know, I've got a question at the heart of it that I want to ask. And I think the question at the heart of this was how can I create something that everybody who wants to be in huh. can be in but is it. also entertaining for the audience. And so that's where I started. It wasn't that I really wanted to write a play. And I think the play itself is less if you looked at it because really what it was was a series of sketches that were loosely connected with a theme. So I did two of them. The first one was called Murder on the Ozone Express. And so it was an environmentally themed murder mystery set on a train. And so my idea was I would audition (laughs) everybody and then based on their capacity for performance, I would write a role in it so if you were the sort of person who wanted to be in it but you kind of were, could only handle one line, I would write a character that only had one line. And so I really just, I mean, it was Moneyball before Moneyball. Yeah, you know, I, get, I really I was looking it. at this is not this is not about the stars. Like uh, this is a real team defense approach that yeah. I am taking to um, this okay. creative process. And so everyone who wanted to be in it got in it. I just wrote a, like a scenario where I could intertwine all these characters. But I knew because I had peppered it with jokes about, you know, like popular culture things, jokes about, you know, teachers at the school, things that the kids at the school would understand. I just in my head was like, we, I've always had this attitude of sometimes if you're just confident that it's going to work, ignore all the speed humps on the way. Now, a lot of that relies on, because if it works, Everybody, all the problems, everybody will forget about the problems. So it kind of relies on it working. But my attitude back then was I kept getting told what I could and couldn't do. And so I would often just say yes when they said, like, for example, I had to submit the script and it had a whole bunch of jokes in it. They said, you can't do these jokes. And I was like, okay, absolutely. I won't do those jokes. So you got censored. I I didn't know this. Well, but no, but here's the thing. I didn't take any of the jokes out. (laughs) I just told them that I was going to take the jokes out and then didn't tell the cast because in my head I was like, this is going to kill. We are absolutely going to win this competition and once we win, it's not going to matter that I, I you know, disobeyed the rules. So that's what I did the first year and we did win. Um, you know, the it, it won by like a fair margin because it, just because it was – 
something that the audience could enjoy versus, you know, what these other things were. It, it was brilliant. Do you remember the line, the the constant line that would come back that your sister Suze delivered in the play? No, absolutely not. So it was about a train, right, yeah. the, the Orient Express, and no. Suze was up there and I can still clearly remember her saying intermittently throughout the play, Geez, we're going fast. And it, oh, yes. was, it was cracking the room up. And it was like school play was like, oh, no, we're going to sit through Robin Hood or whatever. And then you had delivered this piss funny. I can remember thinking, how's he done that? How has Will done that? You were like the hero of the school because all of a sudden you were funny. And you hadn't been funny to that point, I don't reckon. I mean, I think that you're right in that. And because it had been like disrespectful of authority and those sort of things, it does certainly, yeah. you know, the kids are on your side. Yes. You know? We were right on your side. The next year was more difficult because the uh, get the feedback about what you have to take out of it and then ignore it trick only works once, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> the second year uh, when I did the sequel, which was called Gunfight at the Ozone Corral. That's it, and so that's it. Very similar premise, you know, just uh, like an environmentally seemed sort of, uh, you know, old, old school Western gunfight and just, again, series of sketches, which we won also with that. But that was the time that my school teacher, um, uh, anyway, I'm not I'm not holding on to this. This isn't a bad thing. But there was a school teacher there who um, uh, said to me, you're not funny and you're never going to be funny. <laughs> and- <laughs> That's quite direct feedback, which will, as a father of young children, you do not get that in school these days, I assure you. Some for good, some for bad, but you ain't getting that feedback. Well, it's fair to say, despite the successes I've had in my career, I still get plenty of that feedback. (laughs) If you read far enough down the comments, you'll find somebody who still agrees with my high school teacher, Esther (laughs) Cribbies. So, mate, when... um, When... Did you think, and I always ask this to the to the athletes, when did you think oh, I could make a, oh, this is something I want to do as a cricketer or as a footballer, when did you think maybe I could be a comedian? It's a hard question. I think the first time is when I was writing those plays. Yeah. I really okay. did think, you know, I had an inkling that if I did this, this would work. And huh. then when you do it. It works. It reinforces that idea of, okay, well, my instincts were pretty good in this regard. I mean, as a teenager, hopefully you're developing some instincts. And I was developing an instinct that I thought I knew, you know, what could entertain people and, you know, what was important in that process and that maybe I looked at that process in a slightly different way to some other people who were doing that process. So that was all there then. And I remember when I was 17 years old, my mum took me, I was, I was going off to, to Canberra to do journalism um, and my mum took huh. me to see Billy Connolly at, the, at Hamer Hall, the Melbourne Arts Centre, 3,000 people in this room. I tried everything. All the different styles and to make me attractive. I'm a kind of plain guy, you know, under all this hair. I'm kind of plain face. Cartoonists. I'm not, I don't feel the least bit fucking sorry. I'm loaded. So. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the room that night, seeing people from probably age 10 through to age 
75, 80 because his audience was so broad. And he appeared like he just walked out on stage and talked for two hours and swore and told these stories and was anti-authority and and just I laughed so hard. My mum laughed so hard, but it was just feeling everybody united in that moment. These people who would have nothing in common the minute they walked out of those doors mm-hmm. were all united in this moment by laughter. Isn't that incredible? Like this this like 12-year-old and this 80-year-old who if forced to have a conversation might not be able to find anywhere to connect were connecting unwittingly in that moment because this guy up there on stage was entertaining this entire room full of people we armed with nothing more than his wit, his instincts. He was doing something that people do for free every day. Everyone in the world talks. Everyone in the world tells stories. He was like, I am so good at talking and telling stories that this is my job. You will all gather in a room and shut shut up so that I can tell these stories. And I remember sitting in that room that night and just thinking, this is the the greatest feeling I have ever felt in my life. I don't think that I thought I want to be a comedian or I thought I could do that. It would have been incredibly arrogant and ridiculous for me to say, you know, that's like saying, you know, Don Bradman play cricket mm. and go, oh, yeah, I reckon I could play cricket. It, But there was something about how perfect that moment felt that I was like, this is something that I want to be around. Funnily enough, I then went to uni and studied journalism and really dedicated myself to that and didn't do comedy at all for those three years that I was at university. So the people who are most surprised that I chose comedy as a career are the people I went to uni with because they didn't even get the school plays stuff. They, I was yeah. doing nothing that would have been considered like comedy or creative when I was at university. So so hold that, hold that thought for a yeah. sec. Um, I've been thinking about doing this artist series for a while now and you are proving in my mind why it is the way to go forward because I'm enjoying this conversation so much and it's so different to what you have with athletes and I'm appreciative that you've given me that opportunity, mate. So a couple of things there. We'll get to the level of comedy you have got to and the places you have played and the selling out the opera house and stuff. Have you ever had or did you ever have the opportunity to speak to Billy Connolly and say you're the spark that lit the fire? Twice, luckily. Did you? So... Yeah, twice. So once really briefly in a radio interview, um, you know, but I thought it might be my only chance. Was he so in the room it. or he was on the phone? He was on the phone. Okay. And then he uh, made a movie called The Man Who Sued God. Yes. And um, he was in Australia. He was promoting that movie. And I, we, Adam Spencer and I were doing the Triple J Breakfast Show and we did the last interview uh, of the morning. And... So then they were going to break for this lunch. Then he was going to go back into press again. It was one of those ones where he's essentially sitting in a hotel room and, you know, team after team are coming in to interview him about the movie. But we just happened to be the last one before lunch. And at the end of the interview, I just said to him, you know, like, yeah, Billy, this is, you know, my situation and I wouldn't be doing, you know, this without you. And he was incredibly generous about it uh, to the point where, we then went to this lunch, which was with a bunch of like media, other media celebrities, you know, your Richard Wilkins and Angela Bishops of the world. Richard and, Wilkins. And <laughs> Billy asked to sit next to me because he now knew that I was a comedian and for him huh. what he wanted to do was 
talk about comedy. So I remember ringing my mum afterwards, like, you know, because she'd taken me to this first gig and I was so excited that I just had this lunch sitting next to Billy Connolly. And she goes, she said, what did you ask him about? And I said, I honestly barely got an opportunity to ask him a question because the entire conversation was about me, not because I was telling him about me, but because he was interested in what it was like to be a young comedian. He was interested in, because he'd had that experience himself, he wanted to know what it was like for me, what sort of gigs I was doing, what sort of material I was doing, what were the challenges, what was the scene like, who were the other good people. Like, you know, we talked about worst gigs and best gigs and, you know, shared stories. And it was incredible because obviously in that moment, there's a part of you that thinks if I ever get this opportunity, I want to make it all about them. But the fact that he wanted to make it all about me was, yeah, bigger. It kind of, it felt better. You know, I learned nothing about him, but, you know, I can watch him on Parkinson and learn something about him. But I learned, you know, it was just great to see how engaged he still was in it and how excited he was was in it. Um, at one stage I um, made a joke about um, – uh, uh, something in bad taste. I won't say what the topic was, but comedians often when they're joking with each other will, you know, go to the darkest and most bad taste areas. And uh, um, he <laughs> he laughed that incredibly big Billy Connolly laugh to the point where everybody else at the table um, kind of stopped and heard this <laughs> laugh. And I won't name the person who said this because I don't want to embarrass them, but it rhymes with Richard Rilkins, uh, said, uh, <laughs> said, said, tell us another one, Billy. And Billy just whispered, whispered to me, he goes, oh, what a dickhead. <laughs> so <laughs> still one of the greatest moments of my life. Great, great story. <laughs> Mate, you, you went to Canberra. Um, I went overseas. You went to Canberra. You, you studied journalism. And I've never really had the chance to ask you this. At some point, you would have been a fantastic journalist. You could write for Australia. You had an inquisitive mind. You, you could have become a Peter Lawler writing about sport or you could have become a, a, a business journalist. You, you could have done whatever you want in that field. I, I'm trying to explain to people that you would have been an outstanding journalist in your field. But at some point, mate, you have made a ballsy decision to throw away a respectable, interesting, high-paying wonderful career to go and do something you had no idea as to whether you were going to be able to do and whether it was going to work out. That's a gutsy decision and one I have tremendous respect for, Will. Like, it's turned out brilliantly, yeah. but if people put yourself in that it's position. A, it's an okay story now. But. Yeah, but, but that's always the way, isn't it? That's always the way. So so what did you do? Did you wake up one morning and think, now nah, stuff this. I, I don't want to do this. This is what I really want to do. Inspire me, William. As you would know, uh, Mark, because you know my father, he's not yep. somebody who um, is involved in the arts or has no. a passion for the arts. Uh, I think uh, he didn't – I can't even remember him watching many sort of TV shows that were dramas or comedies or any of those sort of things. All my love of that came from my mother. Mm -hmm. Dad would watch sports, the news, country hour, anything about farming. <laughs> country and then hour. I, I forgot about country hour. And I think he thought that the Flying Doctors and Blue Healers were the same show. They just stopped <laughs> flying planes and become cops. I think that was really my dad's level of engagement. But one of the things that he really inspired me with, and I think about a lot, um, as an adult, which was my dad's a dairy farmer because he loved dairy farming. 
And my brother has become a dairy farmer and taken over the farm, but I'm the eldest. Often that would be the responsibility of the eldest kid on a dairy farm is to become a farmer. <laughs> and my dad <laughs> never really put any pressure on me that that was something that I would have to do. In fact, his example was find something that I love as much as I love farming because farming is really hard and if you're going to be a farmer, you've got to really love farming or it's a very difficult job. And I would say the same about the industry that I have chosen. It can be an incredibly difficult job and it can test you on so many levels, you know, physical, mental, all these sort of things. It is incredibly testing. So that if you don't love it, if you don't love it, then it is not something that you should be doing with your life. I would sincerely say that. And that, so that was the example. And I didn't love being a journalist. I was skilled at it. I had a set of skills that made me successful at the levels that I had been at so far. So I graduated first in my course at university. I'd worked in the Canberra Press Gallery for a series of years. I'd written like newspaper articles for the Financial Review front page before I graduated university. So hmm. I had some level of competency around the job, but I had no desire or passion for it. And I don't think that I would have been a good journalist for that reason because I good didn't point. love it. The only journalism that I really loved was things like the Gonzo journalists, Hunter S. Thompson and, you know, these people who would as much be part of the story as the story itself. That mm -hmm. was the style of journalism, that first-person journalism. The old journalism was, you know, never mention I or me or tell us what your role in it was. I wasn't – I was interested in being in the action and then reporting from the action. You know, here is my view of what is going on. And I think that stand-up felt like a much more natural place for that combination of skills. It's it's often like a range of similar skills. Like doing journalism at university, not a bad university course to do if you want to be a stand-up comedian because many of the skills <laughs> that you learn in journalism around writing and structure, and it's good writing for stand-up because it's all about efficiency and structure and, you know, using, you know, clear communication. Um, you know, these are all really good skills for a comedian to have, like just the capacity to look at media and understand what it's saying versus what's really going on. They're great skills to have in the profession that I have chosen. And like philosophy is a journalism podcast yes. in the same way as, you know, this is, this is long form journalism. You're doing a long form interview with somebody and yeah, for the purposes of journalism. And philosophy is definitely that. And certainly a show like Gruen is a journalistic show about advertising, you know, mixed with comedy. Like there have been plenty of things that I have done in my career that have used the skills from journalism or that you might even say are still journalism. But being just a journalist, just going through life reporting other people's stories rather than living my own stories was just, that was where it was. That was the bit that didn't work for me. And so I was super successful at this thing and miserable like really miserable. And I remember going to Tom Burton, who was my bureau chief at the Financial Review, and I, I was at the point where I had to choose, was I going to stay in Canberra because my university course had finished? Was I going to go and, um, you know, work at the City Morning Herald or, you know, go to you know, Melbourne and work at a newspaper there? And I said to him, I said, you know, I, I just don't think that I, I, I love this. And I, he, he was so generous because he was the guy who had really put the most into me up until that point. 
He was the guy who'd given me the opportunity. He was the guy who'd nurtured me, explained things to me, talked to me about what journalism was. And then I was coming to him at the end of this opportunity and saying, I don't really think this is for me. And so his spirit of generosity, when he said, that's okay, he said, look, you've been, you've been very good at this thing that you don't like. Imagine if you go away and work this hard at something that you do like to do. I guarantee that, you know, you'll be successful at that as well. And so he, it was a great moment because he was right. I mean, imagine if I took the skill set and the work ethic and these things that I had obviously demonstrated over those last couple of years and then, you know, applied them to something that I was super passionate about, then it gave me a real sense that I could be successful. That is the end of Will Anderson, part A, more laughs, coming your way in part B. Listener.